Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I'll be having inspiring conversations with passionate product people. Now, when it comes to inspiration, sometimes we all need a little bit of help. If you follow me on Twitter, you'll know I'm a passionate advocate for mentorship. The first quarter of this year, I've mentored 76 different people, but I've realized I just don't scale. Because of this, I've teamed up with a buddy to help more mentors and mentees find each other. So if you want to find out more about that, check out onenightinproduct.com slash mentor, where you can sign up to be a mentor, mentee, or both. That's onenightinproduct.com slash mentor. We'll check the show notes for details. On tonight's episode, we talk about discovery and experimentation. No, not creating our own product management Frankenstein's monster, but making the right moves and doing a solution test to understand whether people actually want to use our products. We talk about why some companies struggle with the very concept of discovery, how we might win skeptics around, how to run good experiments, and how to analyze the data you get back and turn it into action. We also ponder whether all these cool Silicon Valley startups we hear about are any good at this sort of stuff, or if they're just stuck in the same boat as the rest of us. For all this and much more, please join us on One Night in Products. So my guest tonight is Jim Morris. Jim's a data-driven, sports-obsessed product discovery coach who says he's been in over 600 user interviews in his time, and I'm hoping he didn't come away from those with 600 different feature requests on his backlog. Jim says he's a convicted monopolist, which I definitely have questions about, as well as a former restaurant host and keen gardener who says he hates his cat staying out past dinner time. When he's not anxiously looking at the cat flap, he's busy getting teams to work together and helping product managers be successful, which he's doing with his own consultancy, Product Discovery Group. Hi Jim, how are you tonight? Doing great, Jason. Thanks for having me. No problem. It's good to have you here. I'm looking forward to what we're going to discover tonight. But before any of that, I do have to ask, you described yourself as a convicted monopolist. So does that literally mean you were playing Monopoly, got the go-to-jail card, or do you mean something a little bit more interesting than that? No jail, but my company was number two in the market. The number one company in the market bought us. The U.S. federal government decided that the combined company was a monopoly, monopolistic player in the market. And they took the combined company trial, and they convicted the combined company. Mostly on the emails of the acquiring company. Really don't want to write down if we do this acquisition, it will reduce (laughs) you know barriers to entry. It'll increase barriers to entry and reduce pricing pressure on our sales deals. This is the sort of thing that gets brought up on that tech emails site that you see all the old Apple exposés and stuff. So you're you're up there with all these other uh, I don't know the malfeasance that's being caused by these other companies. But did you uh, get in a lot of trouble for that or? slap on the wrist or how did they treat you? For us as employees, I mean, I was a founder of of the acquired company. It doesn't necessarily have any individual impact. We did convert into like shares and money into the the acquiring company. It just meant that we had to split out. Oh, there you go. Yeah. As a product leader was one day I was leader of a large group and the next day I was in a very small spin out company rebuilding everything from scratch because the acquiring (laughs) company had let go most of the employees of my company into intervening two years. Oh, wow. There you go. What a story. That's a limited Netflix series right there. So let's get back down to business end and pass go and collect our $200 or whatever it is these days. So you're the founder of Product Discovery Group out there in Silicon Valley. And I can probably take a guess at what you do with Product Discovery Group. But just in your own words, specifically, what problem are you solving with Product Discovery Group? Sure. So I 
coach product leaders to create and grow successful product organizations, mostly focused on connecting with their customers and connecting with their data. And then as part of that, I work also with cross-functional teams as a group to teach them like product discovery techniques that are setting like outcome goals, as well as recruiting and interviewing users on a regular basis. And then kind of putting that together to create solutions and test them so that they don't just make stuff up and give it to engineers. <laughs> Never happens, right? But who's hiring you to come into these companies then? Are you being hired by the product teams? Are you being hired by the leaders, the exec suite of the business? Are you kind of being hired by individuals to kind of come in via the back door? Like, how do you actually get in there in the first place? Yeah, it's usually heads of product uh, or CEOs. So there's no, if there's no head of product, it's often a CEO. That's usually in the smaller companies. Sometimes they're passing off product to their their employees for the first time. Right. And so help, helping manage that transition. And but yeah, it's usually those groups. Now that's been going for a while. I think that's been going for six or so years now. So you've been at it for a bit. But before that, you've had an illustrious career across tech, product, even spent a bit of time as a CTO from time to time as well. So you've obviously got that engineering and tech background as well. But you've now decided to double down on product, product discovery, product teams, as, as we just said. So I guess the question there is, what was it that made you, of all of those things that you could have chosen, decide that it was product discovery and coaching of product discovery that you really wanted to focus on? I was lucky enough to be an engineer in the beginning of what we know as the internet. And I actually met Jeff Bezos. He sat on our couch in our engineering area one time. <laughs> Did he bring two pieces with him? Yeah, you know, I'm not sure. He wasn't really that famous back then. Amazon was only selling books. My company was selling sporting goods. So we were considering a peanut butter meets chocolate arrangement, I assume. <laughs> I was not an executive in this company. But what I learned as an engineer and leading engineering groups and product, because before there were product managers, it was people like us who were leading product, is that we now can build anything. The tools to build them are so much easier than before. I can rent servers. I can often find resources all around the world to help me become a team and build something. But the ideas that we use in this process, the ideas that we build are just as naive and raw as they were 25 years ago. And this is the sad state of the industry is that we are continuing to build often what comes to mind and without really checking with, you know, reflecting these ideas off of the world or checking if they're successful even after we launch them. Yeah, again, I'm sure that never happens, but Sounds like the sort of thing that would be terrifying if it did. But what sort of companies are you working with mainly then? Like you're out in Silicon Valley. So are you mainly doing a Silicon Valley tour and working with Silicon Valley startups or scale-ups? Or are you kind of working internationally and working with a bunch of different companies around the world? Like who's your customer base or your ideal customer base? Yeah. On the product leader coaching, it varies and it's quite geographically diverse. I have folks in England or Scotland, all the way East Coast and, and West Coast. Those hours tend to, to work nicely all around the, the clock. In terms of the teams, they tend to be in, I mean, they vary from startups to corporations. Startups don't have execution problems. They typically have this two-pizza team, but they often have an idea problem that they, they take funding of the startup as validation when really it should be validated by the market. Corporations often have both problems where it can be hard to execute and can be hard for product teams to actually have a voice in corporations typically have very strong sales, marketing, and executives. And so product is growing and is new and they don't quite know where to put it and how it forms a part of the like 
successful part of the company. And so often what I'm doing in these companies is helping them, helping product make its place and then, of course, earn its place. We as product people should always be earning our, our keep with <laughs> checking with customers, following our data, creating great deliverables for engineering that are based on reality, not just our opinions. But do you find, and based on what you just described, obviously you're working with small and large companies. Do you find, I mean, I've worked for large companies before and I can definitely speak to some of those execution problems and the kind of top-down management and, of course, all the different ways that big companies can suck at doing that kind of stuff. Like, do you find that that's something that you can make a really big impact on, like when you go in there, or is it just really kind of a case of almost incremental change and just trying to make them a little bit better to try and push them a little bit down a better path, but that there's only certain amounts that you can do in the kind of time that you get with these people? It depends on the commitment of the leaders of the company. So when I work with cross-functional teams, they soak up the techniques and the experience about working with customers and pulling data and using data in conversations to convince people, whether it's qualitative or quantitative. Leaders often have a harder time giving up their micro control of decision making. And so as we talk about actually using data to make decisions, most people are trying to put in objective and key results frameworks where you have data as goals. And so that's really the if the company is committed from the top to change, not just it, discovery is, is not something that is an isolated technique, right? I could teach you to interview users, but if you're not learning from interviewing users and you're not changing your mind from interviewing users, you should not be doing it. <laughs> but when you change your mind, that means that a roadmap item might change, but that roadmap item might feel sacred in your company. And so it starts at the top by not making sacred roadmaps. <laughs> Yeah, and almost uh, combating the cognitive biases as well, like the sunk cost fallacies uh, and the fact that people have gone out there and maybe either fallen in love with an idea or they've maybe even worse still made a commitment either to the board that they're going to do this new thing or they're going to go out and make a commitment to a client that they're going to sell this new thing or that they're going to do this new thing so that they can get the contract signed and stuff like that. I mean, all things that, again, I'm sure never happened, but if they did, would be absolutely terrifying. But yeah, so you're... <laughs> So you're a big advocate for experimentation and product discovery. You've talked about it just now, and obviously that's the whole point of the product discovery group as well. But I guess these days it's not exactly controversial, certainly in product circles. like It's very much in fashion, both through the efforts of coaches like yourself, other coaches that we're all aware of, as well as some of the popular books that are out there. Like It's, it's out there, and people are talking about this a lot. And obviously in many cases they've been talking about it for some time as well. But it definitely seems to be cresting a wave at the moment. But you've touched on it yourself as well. Like not everyone's doing it enough. Some people aren't doing it at all. Across all of the types of companies that you work for, do you find that even if they're not doing it and maybe don't really have a great idea about how they're going to do it, that there's at least an appetite to go out and do it? Or do you think that there are some companies out there that almost on a point of principle don't do it because they think that they know everything and they don't need that sort of thing at all? There are definitely companies who believe they don't need that sort of thing at all. And these might be the companies that adopt a lot of these fake agile frameworks. Hey, here we go. Let's do safe. <laughs> I know. It's a rabbit hole of discussion, but <laughs> what it does is it takes something like agile, which is an inherently messy incremental process. And with this inherently messy and incremental process, it doesn't lend itself well to leaders who, who want to predict the future and who want some control over the future. So when I say control over the future, I think this is impossible. Yeah. But people don't believe that. And so they want this fake control over the future. And so they take Agile 
and they put it in a framework and it no longer becomes agile, but you still call it agile. So it's a little bit of gaslighting, especially for the employees who thought they were going to be able to do incremental improvement and come up with innovations at their level. But in reality, all the resources are their stage gate decision making by heads of engineering who won't let you control the backlog of the engineers because they won't spend the time or don't spend the time with their colleagues to agree on important metrics for the company, which is the way you delegate without freaking out, the the way you macromanage rather than micromanage. Yeah, for sure. And obviously that touches on another potential rabbit hole there of the whole horror of shadow roadmaps and engineering roadmaps and everything being kind of hidden. I was once called a transparency Nazi for suggesting that that might be a bit of a bad idea to do, but you know. Some people don't like work in progress. Yeah. Right. Some people expect you to be polished when you walk into any meeting and they feel like it's a waste of their time to discuss the intricacies of whether you should or shouldn't do something. And I'm not a big fan of like wasting time, but I am a fan of if we're going to talk about whether we should do something, ideally it's based in some form of reality. And as we're doing it, why don't I show you so that you have some influence uh, in the beginning as opposed to surprising me at the end. And this is like why we talk to users. You know, we can do discovery with our executives and with our users. And you know, it's you know that's one of Teresa Torres's big things is, is managing stakeholders. Just talk to them more often. Oh yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I kind of started to label that, and I don't know if it was me who labeled it that or someone else who labeled it that, and I just copied them, which is almost certainly what really happened. Uh, the kind of idea of full stack discovery and to, like just not. Like you get some people to sit there and they're so precious about the fact that they have to talk to users and that's really the only type of discovery that's valid. And if it's not coming through their product lens, then it's completely invalid and it's just, you know, point in time, just one deal or whatever like that. And it's like, yeah, sure, it kind of is that. But of course, all conversations basically contribute to a bigger picture. And I think it's really incumbent on all product teams to, to listen to everyone, right? They can weight the evidence accordingly. They can weight the discussions accordingly, but they can't just not listen to them. Well, product folks... Often discovery gets a bad name because it takes on a life of its own. Yeah. Product discovery is only relevant if it solves a business problem. We need to solve customer problems to the benefit of the business. Yeah. And so what's the benefit of the business? Executives will say it's a stage gate decision making. And we'll say, the executives will say, I'm going to make money and more revenue or profit by doing the math in my head and assigning features to a product team. But in reality, they should take their top level metrics, break them down one or two levels and start to dole those out to teams yeah. instead of these, these features. And then if teams adopt this, this business attitude, their stakeholders will respect them more because they're speaking two languages. Executives are terrified of not getting your paycheck in the bank by raising investment or uh, hitting revenue numbers. And, and you get the luxury of getting a paycheck all the time, but it does owe it to the business to be related to your work has to be tied to the business. And, and I think that's where not only are we, we're not, we're not selling stakeholders, we're, we're doing discovery, but we're also trying to relate and make relevant our work. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's important. Yeah, we want those people to come towards us, of course, and start to think a little bit more like us and accept the ways that we think. But I think to do that, the bargain has to be that we try and think a little bit how they think as well, right? And not necessarily in the middle, but not at one end or the other. But I'd like to think that Silicon Valley tech startups have all drunk the Kool-Aid in this regard and are all out there doing product stuff properly. Like that's the basis of you're shaking your head already, so I'm sure this isn't the case. But like a lot of the classic books are based on the practices of people that have worked for some of the biggest Silicon Valley tech companies in the world, right? So 
Is it the case that those really good by the book product discovery or product practice companies are even in a minority in Silicon Valley? Or is there like just a strong minority of not that type of company in Silicon Valley as well? Well, I'll first say that the the sad truth in product is that there are successful teams that have bad product managers and no product discipline (laughs) at all. And there are unsuccessful teams that have highly disciplined, very good product people on them. Yeah. It sometimes relates to whether you're in a rocket ship business or not, where you're there at the right place at the right time. Yep. And what we do is to increase the probability of success and to turn ordinary employees into extraordinary employees, right, through doing these techniques. So the issue with Silicon Valley is that you get a lot of external validation when you receive funding, when you have free lunch, when you have a great environment. And really, you can get isolated from the fact that there are customers out there who need to pay for your services so that your company is viable in the long term. So I, I, don't, I don't see it as a widespread concept in Silicon Valley that we're operating with a data-first, qualitative or quantitative data-first approach. Sometimes we're just operating fast, hoping to see what sticks. Yep. Um, and so it, there's a lot of great execution in Silicon Valley. That's what I would say is probably the number one asset is, well, execution and wealthy people who give money to people they don't know <laughs> in risky areas. In the rest of the world, wealthy people give money to people they know in non-risky areas. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. But it's also slightly disheartening that even in the heartland of tech, people are still struggling to do this right. So what hope do the rest of us have? But speaking about that hope, I mean, we've talked about there are some companies that don't like to do this stuff either on purpose or they just don't know how to do it yet or they think that it's a bit of a bind or it takes too long or all of those things that we just mentioned. But you're obviously going into these companies and I guess at least in some situations persuading them that that is the way to go. Now, you could argue and maybe should argue that, of course, if people are coming to you that there's almost a natural appetite for that anyway because someone that didn't want to do this probably isn't going to get you in in the first place. But Presuming that you've gone into at least some skeptical companies or ones where the product team were maybe up for this, but the leadership team weren't, and you needed to help them bed that in and actually get the buy-in to do that, what are some of the approaches that have worked best for you to kind of crest that hill and go down the other side into the wonderful meadows of discovery? I get them to testing with users within 30 days. Yep. And sometimes that requires me to write the recruiting screener for the users. Like, I don't like to do work for my clients, but I have longer engagements. And so what that allows me to do is to have them do some things, have me do some things and get to this point of talking to users. And once they talk to five or six users, they start to understand the approach, which is I'm not going to show one solution. I'm showing multiple solutions, which is a required part of my approach. And then I'm going to talk to users in a way that allows them to react to things so that I get more honest feedback. And when they see the honest feedback, engineers who say, what can we learn from five users start to understand what they can learn from five users. You can't learn everything, but Jacob Nielsen's quote is zero interviews gives zero insight. Yeah. So I do that. And then of course, in the rest of my engagement, it becomes everything they do, they start to do on their own. So that by the time I leave, they're not only hooked on it because they've talked to users, because that's one of the hooking points. They're actually able to do all the various steps. The second thing is I convince management that as you grow, it's going to be hard to tell everybody what to do and that you're actually better off spending the 10 to 20 hours in your roadmap discussions, what if we took half of that and talked about metrics, right? So the idea that there's a different way to manage, that's the hardest part is we teach discovery, but we don't teach the different way to manage. So the managers, 
even though we criticize them for not allowing discovery, we don't actually work with them to understand that, that to teach them that there's a different way to manage yeah. that can work to their advantage. So if, you've, if you as a manager can convey business reality to your employees, you will be able to scale and become a great executive. Yeah. But if you as a manager still want to be a PM working through other people, it won't scale. We, we are not Steve Jobs. We are not Elon <laughs> Musk. These are not the examples to follow. Yeah, well, there's a number of reasons why we shouldn't follow Elon Musk, for example, although obviously we'd own Twitter by now if we were, I guess, and did it properly. Okay, so that sounds fair enough. And obviously, trying to make that more cultural change, I guess, sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. It really depends on the company and the buy-in you can get, as you say. But assuming that you do get that buy-in and that there is scope then to go out and do some proper discovery or you know get your five users or whatever it is that you want to achieve, if you're working for a company that's never done it before or working with a team that's never done it before, it's quite possible that these, you know, like if we're talking to people or talking about people that have maybe been in a more of a feature factory, top-down delivery type product management role, sort of project manager, really not really a product manager, if they don't have the skills, they're not just going to be able to go and ask good questions of the people that they want to do discovery interviews with because they'll probably go in there and reaffirm all their biases and lead the respondents and do all of that stuff that we're told not to do when we talk about discovery. So I guess the question that comes out of that is, what techniques or methods do you go into these people with then to try and get them up to speed as quickly as possible to make sure that when they do go out and talk to these customers, especially if it's the first time and you're trying to validate the approach, that they're actually getting good results out of those interviews and that they're asking the right questions and getting something useful out the back of it? Yeah, I've concentrated on one product discovery technique, which I call the solution test. And that's before you do usability, because you don't quite know if it's the solution you want. Usability is just as it confuse people, not do they want to use it. <laughs> My teams don't ask the hard question often, does anybody want this? And so I go straight for that question. You can read the sprint book, it's not in there. <laughs> so do, you, do they want it? And as we approach that existential question, we're also looking at the interview as a way to, well, I'll say that I, for the solution test, I have people create a variety of solutions, usually fake prototypes, as a way to get reactions from users. When I ask you, hey, would you use a concept? And I describe it to you verbally. Maybe I show you a screenshot of it. You're not really participating in that concept. You're like in a movie theater watching it. Yeah. And so the distinction is quite real when I send you the link and have you interact with it and share me your screen. As I get users to interact with things, the reactions become more honest. And so the solution test for me hits a, a, a very sweet spot in terms of authenticity that is, in some ways, hard to mess up. Now, you can sort of lead people through, <laughs> but I do the first couple of interviews, right? So I give them the theory, I model it, I watch them interview, and then I give them advice. It's a typical didactic technique. And I get QA people, engineers. I get designers used to tell me they were terrified of talking to users. And it's sort of a script, although once we get to the prototype itself, there's not much to say except set up the mindset, give them the reason they're there. You need to buy an iPhone accessory. You need to pick a primary care physician and then just stop talking. And so if we get to awkward silence, then I know we're getting somewhere. And when they get users struggling and they learn not to talk during that struggle, they realize that like making good software is hard. <laughs> and that they should really step back and just have a humility type moment. So that's the, in terms of avoiding leading questions, 
there's a structure I give them. The nice thing about a solution test interview is it also helps validate, is it the problem? Is the problem correct? Is the opportunity interesting? Do you have the right users that you've recruited? Are your personas good or bad? Is your jobs to be done actually good or bad? And we put all this stuff together in the sprint book. They do it in a week. I usually do it in a couple of weeks because I'm not worth them you know, 24-7. <laughs> but once they create this prototype, and I call them experiments, the experiment is meant to learn something, not meant to get them to say yes. Yeah. And so that's the, if they can get that approach, I turn everybody into interviewers. I don't bother trying to make non-designers make prototypes. We do if it's a sprint week, then we have to do that. But otherwise, in most teams, it's just the designer. But we will get into that whole flow and then pass it to the designer. Whereas most people will they'll skip making that experience and they don't actually learn how to make a good experience. They'll just sort of make a bunch of bullet points and hand it over. Yeah, that no, makes a lot of sense. I was going to talk a bit about experimentation as well, because I know that you've got a fiery passion for it. And we've obviously already touched on some of the elements of it. So I guess if we then assume that some of these prototypes or mock-ups or whatever we want to call them are basically mini experiments that you're going to run with users to test the desirability, usability, feasibility, all of the stuff that we might want to test with these people. What are some of the key things to look out for? I, I was going to ask about a good experiment, but let's flip that and say, what are some of the key things not to do when you're putting one of these experiments in front of people if you want to get good results out of it? One, don't build it in software. Right? So people, when they hear about experimentation and discovery, they think immediately to A-B testing or multivariate testing. I say, no, 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 I've done a lot of that. That requires you to build two solutions or five or six in order to get one winner. And if you release that to the public, those two to five solutions have to be privacy compliant, secure, disaster recovery compliant. It's just a lot of engineering time that doesn't go into the value to the user. Once you know the value, sure, invest in that stuff. So don't build it as much as possible. Most of my teams are making fake prototypes, whether it's a report, API documentation, clickable prototypes. That's one thing is don't build it. The other is don't just show it. There has to be an experiential element. We're not holding it in our hands, but we're looking at it on our own screen. We can interact with it. The fake report might be a bunch of Excel data that works in an Excel graph. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a web UI that's fully functional. Don't make one long solution. This just happened with the team. I said, we're going to make these experiments. We're going to do multiple solutions. Everyone did sketching. We said to the designer, like, here's the sketches. Let's make some prototypes. And the designer sort of fused them into one long experience, <laughs> which is what people do. Because they're always asked not to make works in progress, but to make a final experience. So if they were to go to a design review and say, here's my three ideas, it would be frustrating for leaders who want to give a yes, no decision. Yep. So... The ideas from the team had been incorporated, so the designer was listening. But as an artifact to show you, you would click through it, you would experience them, and you'd be like, yeah, okay. That's the response that users have. That's interesting. I like it. I'd use that. And those are all lies. <laughs> so what we do is we, I want you to slice it up. Take one piece of the experience. If it's e-commerce, don't do search and navigate, filter, pick something, read the reviews, add to cart, billing, shipping, address, credit card, checkout. Give me add to cart. Give me three variations of add to cart. Yeah. What that means is I'm getting the variation from my designer. If I've got a subject matter expert who doesn't build experiences but has a great idea for add to cart, they're talking to me about how they can cross sell on the add to cart page. Or I mean, add to cart pages have been, you know, bloated and, and overdone at this point. But you get the idea that at some point they thought, oh, let's innovate this page. 
uh, for better or for worse. <laughs> Gamify. Yeah. So so don't make big, long prototypes. One, because they make for long, boring user tests that don't give you results and don't do it. So again, if you're testing with users and you're not changing your mind or pivoting, just stop doing it. You're wasting time. Now, usability testing has its place. Like you don't want to confuse people. So I might take a final prototype that's almost ready for engineering, that's pixel perfect. At the very end of discovery, as we've been refining it, I run it through one more time. Sure. Usability does matter, but not unless people want to use it. Okay. And then <laughs> don't make a prototype that is like you would use it in real life. I coach designers to make prototypes that are ugly because it may not follow the company style guide. If I have a call to action and the company style guide is really subtle, when a screen shows up, I don't want to tell a user they don't do anything, would you click this button? I want the button or the link to be so obvious that they have to tell me they're not going to click it or they're going to click it. So as we lead people through an experiment, I often do things to the thing that you're interacting with so that I don't have to talk to you. Yeah. So I have to talk to you, Jason. I've Again, it's not a leading question, but I might want to explain myself. It's a natural thing to want to explain myself. And so I need to take myself out of it. And part of it is making the solution test that does this. Those are a couple of the things. I mean, there's a don't overdo it. Don't overbuild. <laughs> People will put a lot of buttons, like, like they said, make it obvious, <laughs> and they'll build the resulting pages for all those buttons. Well, if no one clicks on buttons one, two, three, and four, and they only click on buttons five and six, well, next user test, build the buttons for six and seven. Because yeah. they often think they don't believe or they don't understand that user testing is continuous, that I'm going to come back to this topic. So I can talk, I can actually tackle a subset of what's in my brain. Yeah. So the other, you know, they make long prototypes, but that's because they're always trying to build long projects. Yeah. So if we take agile, the one thing that was successful in software is we just <laughs> build things and release them faster. Like engineers can't tell you why we can't tell you, like we, we just, we're bad at software, but if we do it faster, we're better at software. <laughs> actually in product, it works like that too. Our ideas, our dreams are big. But if we start to write them down, we realize how actually bad they are. But if we break them down and do discovery in this, like, let's do three versions of Add to Cart, Add to Cart becomes awesome. Then we do three versions of billing and shipping. That looks great. And the users, actually, they can handle this. They can handle uh, experience A on this page and then, like, slightly different experience B and then experience C. Users are not timid or, or afraid. I mean, they, they put up with a lot. I mean, just go to Craigslist, eBay, <laughs> Amazon. These are frustrating sites to use, but they love these sites. Yeah. So when you get out the back of the testing that you're talking about, the experimentation, obviously the interviews that you get to do as well, you're coming out of that, as we discussed earlier, with some qualitative and quantitative data that you want to do something with. Now, obviously, we could probably talk all day about what to do with that data and some of the cool techniques you could use. But I guess if you were working with a less than data savvy team and you wanted to teach them some of the basics about what to do with that data so they can actually turn what they've done into insight. Like, do you have any frameworks or techniques that you kind of start them off with to help them to do that? Yeah. One reason teams do not do discovery again or why teams don't replicate a design sprint is because analyzing qualitative data sucks. It takes time, yeah. especially if you're new to it. If I have an unstructured set of interviews, I talked about solution tests. Let's talk about generative interviews where they're unstructured. If I have five or six of those, I have to go through half of those interviews. And if it's five hours, call it two and a half hours of interviews to understand what I'm looking for. 
Yeah. And then that last part of that, I might find something that I want to go back to the first interview and find that there's a quote or a feeling about. So, and I've checked with some qualitative researchers that it's about one and a half passes through the data, which in five hours at seven and a half hours, although I do listen to people at a faster clip. <laughs> Just like me with podcasts. Um, as long as they don't talk like President Obama talks, which is <laughs> slow and then fast and then slow and then fast. <laughs> so it helps to be organized up front before you start the first interview, especially with solution tests because they're so structured, which is again is the reason I start there. Because if you start with unstructured interviews, there's so much. Everyone can take their own understanding from it. But if we actually think about a couple solutions and exercise our brain to what the solution might be, we're actually in a better mental state to evaluate someone's reaction to it rather than these kind of very raw interviews that are just most common in discovery. Yeah. You know, hey, what do you think? What do you like? What's your pain point? Let me follow you around for the day. These are hard to analyze. So let's just say that a structured interview is easier with a prototype. They're going to make one primary hypothesis about this study. Users, I don't know, they, want to, they want to do this specific thing. And then on each of the screens we're doing, we're also making choices like in the text message, I'm going to say, hi, Jason. In the text message, I'm going to put the last four digits of your credit card or not. In the text message, I'm going to put a link that says blah, 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 dot org slash this. And so even a text message might have five hypotheses in it. And we might make three or four different text messages to see which one users feel most comfortable clicking or some other action. So then as, as we get through the interviews, for the known hypotheses, we can then just kind of check off yes, no, like personalization, didn't like it. Not by asking them, do you want your name in there or not, just by saying which of these text messages or push notifications makes you feel most confident about proceeding on this task, right? And we might have to read between the lines, but we're going to find one that works or, or not. And, and, and actually, a lot of people don't want to click on text messages. They will just go around to the website that you've mentioned that your yeah. car repair is ready. They're not going to go to this. They're not going to click on that link from the, what is maybe the car repair company, maybe not. <laughs> but that's okay. The text message had its purpose. So the, that hypothesis failed. But the primary hypothesis of actually going to pick up your car when you get the notification worked. Yeah. And so I give them this structure that allows them, ideally, within a half an hour of the last interview, if they're filling it out as they go, to make a distinction. Four out of five users agree with the primary hypothesis. Or at the end of the interview, if I'm like interviewing in a live event, did I cover that? And my colleagues on the interview can say, look, you didn't, you know, they can chat me. You didn't ask the big question. Would you be disappointed if you didn't get a notification that your car was ready? I asked that. User says, very disappointed, somewhat disappointed. There's some reaction. And then we, we note that so that sometimes we get through interviews and we forget to ask the big question. Yeah. And the big question is, wouldn't, would you use this or not? It's, it's not that simple because users so often say yes when they don't mean it. <laughs> the mom test, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's, a great, that's my great structure is the hypotheses to hang it all off of. And I also have a technique I call the user analysis grid. It happens when, I'm in, when I used to do in-person testing and you can't take a lot of notes but I want to make sure that I covered each of the main points. And so I'd have users as rows and my main points as columns. And I could usually put five or six users' data on one clipboard's worth of stuff. But that grid is now in Excel or Google Sheets when I'm online, which is most of the testing now. Uh, some excellent techniques there. Where can people find you after this if they want to speak to you about anything that they've heard on the podcast tonight or find out a bit more about Discovery or tell you if they've seen your cat staying out late? Yeah, if you see my cat around the corner, 
Please call the number <laughs> on her collar. Have you put a GPS track on her yet? I put an air tag on her. <laughs> yes. We love our cat, and, and she's a little bit wayward. We'll see if that works. Anyways, as passive tracking, it's a pretty amazing device, and it hasn't seemed to annoy her. <laughs> In terms of finding me, I do not wear a tracker. I guess my phone is a tracker. You can go to productdiscoverygroup.com, or you can just Google Product Discovery Group, and you can find me from there. Twitter, at SFJ Morris, like San Francisco, Jim Morris, SFJ Morris, or LinkedIn. There's a lot of Jim Morrises in the world, pretty generic <laughs> name, but if you put product or product discovery after my name, that'll usually work. I'll go and do that and save everyone the effort by putting it into the show notes so they can come and find you friction-free. Well, that's been a really fantastic chat. Obviously, really grateful you spent some of your time talking about some really interesting topics, and hopefully we can inspire some people to think a little bit differently about discovery, or at least start trying to do it in the first place. Hopefully, we can stay in touch. But yeah, as for now, thanks for taking the time. Yeah, thanks, Jason. I really enjoyed your podcast episodes, and I'm super happy to be on it. As always, thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful. If you did, again, I can only encourage you to pop over to onenightinproduct.com, check out some of my other fantastic guests, sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favorite podcast app and make sure you share with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night.